The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're going to continue our study uh, through Wayne Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology and we're continuing to look at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I think tonight's going to be an incredibly thrilling study. And we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit unifies the, the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you just personally, I have found this to be the case. You can meet a Christian that you have never met before in your life, and within a few minutes, you just have an immediate kindred spirit with them, a communication with them, which is so remarkable. And that fellowship with the Spirit is, is so real. It's, it's such an amazing thing. You can have more in common in that way with uh, somebody you've, you've never met before than somebody you've known all your life if they're not a Christian or they don't have that indwelling spirit. So that's an incredible thing. We're going to talk about that. But we're also going to talk about the... Uh, the testimony of the spirit with our spirits that we are children of god the work of the holy spirit in giving us assurance of salvation we're going to talk about the baptism of the spirit and the filling of the spirit Uh, we're going to talk about what it means to be filled with the spirit moment by moment throughout the day we're going to do all that in in less than one hour so that's what we're doing tonight how far are we going to get we'll find out but uh, i'm excited i almost like to go to the last stuff first and do it but uh, let's go ahead and do it decently and in good order we have learned so far about the Holy Spirit that He exists. All right, just we'll start there. The Holy Spirit exists. He is the third person of the Trinity. Uh, he is not an imp- impersonal force. He is a person in that sense. He has a personality. He has a will, an intellect. He has purposes and intentions. Uh, he can communicate. He can speak. He has feelings. This is the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about that. We've talked, secondly, about how the Holy Spirit empowers. He gives life and He gives power for service. We're going to talk more about how He does that tonight. We've talked about how the Holy Spirit purifies. The the name or the title Holy Spirit is just one of several names given to the Spirit of God in the Bible. Spirit of God being another one. uh, Counselor and all that. But the Holy Spirit, I would say, is one of the most frequently used names for the third person of the Trinity. And the reason that we call Him the Holy Spirit not just that we find that term in the scripture, but also we're talking about the purifying ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit is given to the church to purify us from sin. Uh, He has that power. He is the Holy Spirit. He sanctifies us at conversion by setting us apart uh, as Christ's own possession. He also sanctifies us after conversion with the ongoing work of the Spirit. Again, we're going to talk more about some of that uh, tonight, but he convicts us of sin. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, he works a work of holiness within us. Fourthly, and this is what we covered last time, the Holy Spirit reveals. He uncovers truth. He reveals truth. Uh, we talked about revelation to the prophets and the apostles. The Spirit gives evidence of God's presence. There's a sense of the presence of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. He reveals the presence of God. The Spirit guides and directs God's people. The Spirit provides a God-like atmosphere when he manifests God's presence. He gives us assurance and he teaches and illuminates. These are things we've already covered. Now let's get into tonight's work, tonight's study. We're talking about the unifying work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit unifies the worldwide body of Christ. Now from the very beginning, there was this promised outpouring of the Spirit. It was promised... He is the spirit of promise. He is the promised Holy Spirit. 
uh, and it was promised by the prophet Joel. In Joel 2, 28 and 29, it says, Afterward, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will, uh, your old men will, will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So we note the universality and commonality of the outpouring. There are no distinctions in terms of who receives the Holy Spirit on all people. Now, when I wrote that, I obviously mean no distinctions in reference to uh, people who have trusted in Christ. We don't believe that the Holy Spirit's poured out on every single human being on the face of the earth. But rather, it's a gift connected directly with the repentance and faith uh, in the gospel. The Holy Spirit was also promised by John the Baptist, as we've seen in Luke 3, 15 through 17. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he is predicting not just the coming of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, but also the coming of the third person, the Holy Spirit. He predicts the coming of the Spirit. He will baptize you. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The, uh, Jesus Christ himself promised the Holy Spirit. In John 16:7, Jesus said, It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus said, I have to leave in order to send the counselor. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's going to send. Well, that's a promise. He's promising the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised the sending of the Spirit. Also on Acts, in Acts uh, 1, 4, and 5, this is one that, that incredible 40-day period after Jesus was crucified, after he was raised from the dead, he spent 40 days with his disciples and he taught them many things from the Old Testament scriptures. Remember the New Testament had not yet been written, but he, he took them through the law and the writings, you know, the prophets. He showed them everything there was concerning himself in there and he got them ready to share the gospel, to preach the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. 40-day seminary with Jesus. What would you pay to enroll in that seminary? I mean, I'm grateful that you're here tonight and I think it's a great privilege for you to learn from me. But if Jesus were teaching in another room, you would flock to hear him and leave me empty. And frankly, even if you didn't go, it wouldn't matter because I wouldn't be here. I'd be there too. All right, that's what I would be doing. I'd be there learning just like all of you. What an incredible experience. Where in the world did a fisherman like Peter get all of that Old Testament scripture that was in his Pentecost sermon? Where did that come from? Well, it came from the greatest teacher of all time, from Jesus. So he spends 40 days with his disciples. But one of the things he told them was this. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the promised Holy Spirit. He's promised by Joel. He's promised uh, uh, by John the Baptist. He's promised by Christ multiple times. He is the promised Spirit. Well, uh, this promise has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they're all together in one place. Suddenly the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, which separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the great outpouring of the Spirit promised and predicted by Joel. It was promised uh, by Joel and now fulfilled to those in the upper room, 120 in number. They're waiting there constantly in prayer. And then finally, the Holy Spirit comes. 
He's also promised to all who trust in Christ. Now, I already mentioned that. The promise of Joel is not universal. Every single solitary human being on the face of the earth will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is not true. Here we see uh, the filtering of that. It's specifically for those who believe the gospel. If you look at Acts 2, 37 through 39, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So they heard Peter's Pentecost sermon and they were convicted. They were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is a promise. It's a future tense statement. If you repent and believe and are baptized, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? And then look what he says beyond that. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Do you find yourself in that verse? Are you included in there? It's exciting when you find yourself in a Bible verse. You're not actually directly in many, okay? But there you are, just like it says, uh, Father, my prayers, not only for those, but for those who will hear and believe in me through their word, that all of them may be one. John 17, right? You're, you're in there. Or in, in John 20, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Are you in there? Are you included in that? I am. So I have not seen Jesus and yet I believed in him and that's a blessing, right? Well, here uh, is the Pentecost blessing of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Are you far off from Jerusalem? Yes, in two senses. You're far off geographically and you're far off chronologically. The promise is for you. God saw down through the, the corridors of time And he knew exactly what he was doing. And everyone, everyone who repents and believes in Jesus receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? For all who the Lord our God will call. So he's the promised Holy Spirit. And the promise is being fulfilled even now as I speak. I believe it with all my heart that somebody somewhere is receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit right now. Isn't that exciting? And if you're a believer in Christ, you've already received that gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, what that means is, therefore, that the Holy Spirit, the one spirit, he is one person, third person in the Trinity, uh, is given to individual people all over the world. That makes a kind of a unity or a fellowship of the spirit around the world. And that's a mysterious thing, but it's a marvelous thing, isn't it? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit, his presence in and each in each and every member of Christ worldwide unites the body of Christ. And we're going to see this verse again later in our study tonight, but 1 Corinthians 12, 13, actually several times, says, for we're all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. So there's a unity of the body of Christ through the spirit. The spirit unites the body of Christ. Therefore, we talk about the fellowship of the spirit, and that's, it's that which we all hold in common. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And again in Philippians 2, 1 and 2, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So there he mentions again the fellowship of the Spirit. Now this word fellowship is koinonia in the Greek. All right. Now, in Greek society and Koine Greek society, um, the word, uh, the, uh, the, the way that society was set up, there were certain things that were held in common by all the people in that locality, in a town, for example, specifically land. There would be certain land that everyone could use. 
They could use it for grazing. They could use it for picnics. They could use it for whatever. And they're not the only societies that have that. Actually, up in New England, there, a lot of towns would have town commons. Uh, that's where the Revolutionary War began, in Lexington Town Common. It was common land. And, and anybody could come and use it. They could, it was just for everybody. The word koine, the, the common language Greek uh, that you learn if you go to seminary, you learn Greek. That's called the common tongue. It was the language that was held in common by everybody. Well, when it uses this word fellowship, koinonia, what it means is it's that which is shared by everybody. All Christians have these things. And so when we talk about fellowship, we talk about those things that we share in common. The Holy Spirit is primarily what we have in mind when we talk about those things we share in common. We have the one spirit. The one spirit unites the body of Christ. That's kind of exciting. And that's precisely why Christian brothers and sisters who have never met each other can instantly feel a strong connection with each other after just a few moments. They even get silly and like hug each other and stuff. It's like total strangers. But oh, you're a believer in Christ. And, and the reason is there really aren't that many of us proportionally. You know what I'm saying? And so when you find somebody who's got the spirit of Christ in them, you just, there's just that connection. And it's really exciting. They are family members and we feel, have you ever, have you ever noticed that? Have you experienced it? I mean, you're going to find it if you go on the mission field. You're going to find it if you get out and abroad in the body of Christ. You're going to find it. And it's a wonderful thing. It's the spirit that does it. The spirit of Christ. Spirit actively ministers a sense of fellowship. Now, what do we mean then by uh, talking about the unity of the Spirit? It says in Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, what does it mean then, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? Also, Romans uh, 15, 5 and 6 says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit works out all differences between sinful human beings until we gradually uh, imitate the perfect unity of the Trinity. Are there differences between sinful human beings? Differences of perspective? Different opinions? Different desires, hopes, goals, aspirations. Yes, there are. All of those things are there. Uh, this is the work of Christ uh, to bring disparate sinners together until we think exactly alike, until we yearn for exactly the same thing. And the unity we have with each other is patterned after the unity there is within the Godhead, the unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Do you think there's ever any bickering between the Father and the Son? Any disagreements? Never. And nor will there be between us and heaven. All of us will be of one mind. And as we are brought more and more to that, the world sees and believes the gospel because only the gospel can make that kind of unity uh, between uh, different folks. I came across a... Uh, <laughs> I was at, I was at a uh, pastor's conference some time ago. And have you ever seen those cheesy motivational posters that are up in offices and stuff like that. You know, like people climbing and, and all this sort of stuff. Well, somebody came up with these perverse demotivational posters that have the same style, but they're just really very, very humorous. Like one of them, it's just this guy who, who looks totally dejected after a race and he's got his he head in his hands and he's given his best, but apparently, and it says failure. It says when your best just isn't good enough. And that's what it says, you know. So I was going to get one and put it up on the wall. 
there's a whole bunch of them. But it showed two two um, birds at one of those beautiful sunsets, and two birds are kind of like fighting with each other. And and it, it, I think it was something like harmony. It said, and it said, as long as the two of us are together, there'll never be a shortage of problems. <laughs> So, you know, that's whether that's marriage or it's church work or whatever, as long as you've got two sinners involved, there's going to be some disagreements, all right? There's going to be some different ways of looking at things. So if you want to go on the, on the web and find these things and buy them, if they would motivate you and all that, put them up there. You know, could it be, one of them said, could it be that the whole purpose of your life is just as a warning to others? You know, think about that. It's like, oh my goodness. I hope not. I'd like to achieve more than that. Don't be like Andy, you know, at any rate. Okay, the completion of the work of Christ then is to take sinners who are all over the map in terms of attitudes. They're all over the map in terms of convictions, all over the map in experiences and outlook and all that and brings them together and makes them one. That's what Jesus is doing. Isn't that incredible? And the spirit is doing that work. It will not be perfected or completed in this life. But as the ongoing work of unity happens, it is a great testimony to the world. You give a, a clear example for, uh, you know, in, let's say two tribes uh, in Africa, like the Hutus and the Tutsis, are, are killing each other, literally slaughtering each other. Let's say two of them from differing tribes came to faith in Christ and showed the love they have for each other through the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that not a testimony to the watching world of the power of Jesus Christ? Couldn't it be the same, a, a Jewish uh, man and a Palestinian man, each of them comes independently to faith in Christ and then they find they have incredible uh, things in common and they love each other. It's just a witness to the world. And therefore Jesus prays in John 17, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. In other words, as the church more and more models the unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace, the watching world observes and says there must be something going on there. That's something only God could do to bring people that different to love one another, embrace each other. So that's the work of, of, of unity. Uh, look at Ephesians 2, uh, uh, 14 through 18. It says, speaking of Christ, he himself is our peace uh, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Here, Paul is speaking about Jew-Gentile hostility. There was genuine hostility between Jewish people and Gentile people. To some degree, they hated each other. There was a hostility there. But it says that Jesus is our peace. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of, ho- of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one man to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he, he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Isn't that powerful? So the spirit takes the Jew, uh, the Jew, Jewish man or woman and the Gentile and, and each of them comes to faith in Christ and brings them together and makes them one. And both of them have access to the one God by one spirit. They're both moving to the same future destiny in heaven. There's just a unity there that only God, only the spirit can produce. The work of unity is a great evidence of the power of the gospel, as I already quoted John 17. Now, yes, go ahead, John, please. It's really interesting that, uh, you know, God has this perfect unity just in the spirit. He's the spirit of truth. The world is always looking for a counterfeit. So whenever they come up with their movements towards unity, there's always some area where they've uh, somehow compromised on the truth. That's right. That's a very good point. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of churches specialize in counterfeit unity, fake unity. They know that they kind of have to get along 
and they do, but they just paper over or paint over genuine disagreements, doctrinal disagreements even. But Paul says in Corinthians, he prays that they would be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, people get a little disturbed when I say at some, there'll come a point when all of you will totally agree with each other about everything. You're saying, whoa, that sounds like a mind control kind of cult. <laughs> all right. Well, it's not coming from, it's not coming from some external human authority saying whatever. And you're, and if you don't think like this, you're going to be whatever. It's a, it's a transforming work of the spirit of God within us so that we genuinely agree. And the reason, as John said, is that there is actually truth about every issue. And what happens is we just stop with the lies. We don't, there's no lie anymore in us. We will be weaned off of lies and all of us will love and embrace the truth. That's such a good point, John. Thanks. He is the spirit of truth and the unity comes when two individuals finally see the truth and agree in it. So therefore, for me, when we have a doctrinal disagreement or any kind of a disagreement, you don't say, oh, give up or neither less do you sweep it under the rug. Um, rather, what you do is say, let's try to discern you know, what the truth is. What is right? Let's look at the scriptures. Jesus said you're in error because you don't know the, uh, the scriptures or the power of God. The answers are in the scriptures. Except for issues like the color of the carpet or whatever that, you know, you can... At that point, then you have to note that things, some things just don't matter and you just discuss it in other ways. But the Bible is sufficient to cover all of these things and bring us to a genuine unity. Very, very good. Now, spiritual gifts promote unity. I'm going to be preaching this Sunday and the next Sunday, God willing, on the topic of spiritual gifts. What are spiritual gifts? We'll talk about it on Sunday. But spiritual gifts promote uh, unity. The analogy that Paul uses when discussing spiritual gifts is the analogy of the body. He uses the body analogy in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, through 14. There's this picture of the body. Just as the DNA unites every cell and proves that as part of one body, so the common spirit unites each member and proves it is part of the body of Christ. You know, the whole issue of um, forensic work with DNA, by forensic we mean legal work where uh, you know, people can be either convicted or acquitted based on DNA evidence. You know, that's relatively new. Um, there was a time when modernists mocked the story of Eve being formed from the rib of Adam, right? But they don't mock that anymore. A rib is more than enough cellular information to make a whole body. I mean, you, you know that sheep have been cloned and all that kind of thing. As a matter of fact, there was a whole movie based on this and it was Jurassic Park. You remember that movie? You remember how the, the whole basis of, of the book that, uh, who wrote the book? It doesn't matter. But anyway, um, wrote Jurassic Park. The idea was that there were these mosquitoes trapped inside these chunks of amber, right? And they had blood from dinosaurs. And just from a drop of blood, they could get a whole dinosaur. It's preposterous. But at any rate, that's what they came up with. But uh, nobody's mocking or scoffing anymore that a whole human being could be made out of a rib. I mean, that's that's not funny anymore. It's not a joke. There may be other things they mock, but they don't mock that anymore. And the reason is that there's a kind of a cellular signature in every cell of our body. It's part of the body. I think that's just a faint analogy of what the spirit does. We are all part of this one body, and the spirit testifies to that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14 says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we who are all, sorry, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all given the uh, one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So we've got these disparate parts, disparate parts, but we have the one spirit, all part of the one body. 
And so that's the basic idea of spiritual gifts. Every specialized gift of the spirit, therefore, is for the benefit of the whole body. First Corinthians 12, 7 says, Now to each one the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. And what I'm going to argue on Sunday and a week from Sunday is that every single Christian has, I think the best way to look at it would be a spiritual gift package, an array of gifts that the Lord gives you, he entrusts to you for the benefit of the whole body and for your benefit too. And so as you use your gifts, as each part does its work, the body of Christ is built up into full maturity, it says in Ephesians. So the work of spiritual gifts uh, promotes unity in the body. The spirit also opposes all fleshly disunity. Fleshly disunity. Hey, Daphne. How are you? Yeah. I just love that sound. I haven't seen her all day. She wants to have a conversation with daddy. Okay. All right. No, no, stay. Please don't leave. Okay. Um, a spirit opposes all fleshly disunity. Flesh or the sinful nature in some translations translate sarks. It's the Greek word that usually means flesh. And more literalistic translations bring it just across into flesh. Uh, the NIV uh, tries to explain it, saying by this we're not talking about your musculature, uh, but it really has to do with the sin nature. Um, but flesh is okay too. Flesh results in strife and conflict. Your fleshly nature produces disunity. It fights against the unity of the spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.3 says, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? And so there is this uh, idea of strife and conflict. The spirit opposes this powerfully. The spirit's work is to oppose strife and disunity. It's what he has come for. Galatians 5 says, if you are led by the spirit, you're not under law. Now, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Now, look at this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. All right. Now, those those five that we have right away, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. You'd say those are great issues of great wickedness. Right. You look at that and say, oh, you know, suppose I told you, you know, we were like having a discipleship time together. So I'm really just struggling with witchcraft. You know, would you pray for me? I'm just really, you know, struggling with that sin. Would you pray for me, you know, and encourage me in that area? What would you think? I mean, like witchcraft, <laughs> you know, you know, some of the others like uh, brawling. You know, it's been a while since I've indulged that sin, brawling, you know. Uh, so there's some we just look at and say, oh, my goodness. But yet look at the rest of the list. All right. Hatred, discord jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. What do you notice about all those words? What do they have to do with? The heart, okay. Relationships with other people. They have to do with how we get along or don't get along with other people. In other words, the flesh kind of most frequently shows itself in how we get along or really don't get along with other people. Look at that. Hatred, discord. What's discord? What does that mean? Discord. Just not getting along. Is there any discord in heaven? There is no discord in heaven. Every note is in harmony with all the other notes. Everything's just the way it needs to be. Uh, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. All that comes from a yearning or desire for something that you, you don't have. A covetousness and uh, jealousy that breaks apart relationships. That's what the flesh does. All right. The flesh does these things. Uh, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control now if you look at those how many of those words are relational having to do with how you deal with other people i mean to some degree all of them now you can have joy without anybody else in the room and and same with a number of these but many of these are really relational aren't they if you start looking at it uh, they have to do with how well we get along with each other do you see then how the spirit hates and fights against fleshly disunity and promotes unity spiritual unity that's what he's doing he's working unity between people against such things there is no law those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the flesh literally it says with sinful nature with its passions and desires since we live by the spirit let us keep in step with the uh, with the spirit let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other you see how this whole thing is said in the context of you folks seem to not be getting along with each other it seems like you don't like each other it seems like you're fighting and squabbling with each other the answer to that is the spirit-filled life if you are filled with the Spirit, you're not going to be provoking and envying each other. You're going to keep in step and there will be good relationships. So the Spirit promotes unity. Any questions about that whole subject we've been looking at for the last half hour or so? How the Spirit promotes unity. All right, practical application. If the Spirit, if all these things are true, the Spirit promotes unity, what effect would it have on your daily life? Let's start with family relations. All right, what effect would it have on family relations? You don't need to speak of your own. Let's speak more hypothetically, okay? But practically. Um, how would this knowledge that the spirit promotes unity, the flesh promotes disunity, how would it affect your, or somebody's, somebody's theoretical family relationships? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, you'd be you'd be preferring somebody ahead of uh, of your of yourself. That's good. Somebody else. How would this affect relationships? What bonds or things that you discuss stuff with other people, you don't try to uh, make other people mad. Mm -hmm. Okay, the way you talk to each other it would affect that. If you're in the midst of a conflict with somebody, you're in the midst of a conflict. How would the things that we've learned here tonight help you in that situation? What is the source of the conflict? Where does it come from? Sin, the flesh. All right. Now, it may not be as clear-cut as somebody's sinning, but we know that sin produces perspectives and understandings that are faulty, right? Um, when there is no sin, there's no faulty understandings of things. So it may not be as simple as somebody's really being greedy or selfish. It could be just that you have differing perspectives on things where there wouldn't be differing perspectives in heaven. So there's got to be sin. Okay, then what's the remedy? How is the Spirit going to give you a remedy? Okay. Okay. Just giving in to the other person? Do you think that that's what's calling Fred? I was thinking about the same thing, but not necessarily giving in, but your conversation would be gentle. Okay. And you wouldn't be doing a whole lot of listening, trying to solve whatever disagreement there was rather than trying to have your way. Okay. All right. Yeah, and, and John, I don't know that it's definitely that we're giving, you're giving in. 
I mean, it could be that you do see the truth more clearly than somebody else. And if you give in, that actually would be a disservice to the truth. But how you carry yourself while holding the truth makes a big difference, right? Like it says in Scripture, speak the truth in love. If you don't, if you don't speak the truth, go ahead, John. Carry a big stick. <laughs> well, that's good presidential advice. I don't know if it's good Christian advice. <laughs> okay. Right, right. It's amazing how years later we see that, you know, <laughs> during the time we, you know, yeah, go ahead. So on a general principle, I think that when you're living in the spirit, you're supposed to want to have more true relationships with others. If you're dealing with someone who's living in the flesh and is committed to that, you're not going to have more peace, you're going to have more conflict. Yeah, you're going to have conflict. And, and think about the verse that says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. What does that tell you? Hard work. It's hard work. It's hard work in a church. It's hard work in a family. Things just keep popping up, and it's and you should expect it. Don't be surprised when it's coming. It's like expect it. But say again. Occasionally you need to win. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, I think I love your your proverb that you cited. It's really very powerful. Um, A gentle answer turns away wrath. Um, And a gentle answer could be just a mentality that's spoken in which you just know and believe with all your heart that each of you will have some contribution to the final resolution of this difficulty. And so therefore you should speak the truth as you perceive it, but realize humbly you probably don't have the whole picture. I mean, that's why a godly husband would very much desire to get input from his godly wife uh, before coming to a final resolution. Uh, And if there's a disagreement, whatever, he should do a lot of listening or she should do a lot of listening because almost certainly just God in bringing the two together will give some of the truth to one and some of the truth to the other. And they need to learn to listen to each other so that the final ingredient, the final recipe is correct. Jared. We're heading there in the church. I don't know if you guys know that. We're moving toward. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Go ahead.
and went to the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, what was what was Christ's mindset? Well, one, do the will of the Father, to obey what God has commanded. And two, realize that there's suffering in life. Mm-hmm. Every single one of you as a Christian creates effort. We're not all going to see things the same way. There are men who, you know, we, you know, Spurgeon and all those different people, they all had different opinions of doctrinal issues and things. Now, does that mean that they're not in unity because they think differently? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. No. What What is our goal? To do the will of the Father, to sure. do what God has commanded us. You know, Jared, you bring up a great point, and it's something I meditated on. One of our favorite verses, you hear it a lot here in this church, is that there will be people from every tribe and language and people and nation around the throne dressed in white worshiping the Lamb. I believe with all my heart they'll be there as such. In other words, you're not going to check your ethnicity or your experiences at the door. What you're going to check is your error. There won't be any more error. So everybody doctrinally will be agreeing the exact same thing. But, I mean, I'll be excited to see perfect diversity with perfect unity up in heaven. Won't that be something to see? You know, I don't believe in the whole Hindu vision of a drop of water into an endless sea and we all lose our identity and individuality. I think that absolutely will not happen because it says in Revelation, I will give to you a new name, right? A name means you're, you're identifiable, you're a person. And you always will be. Isn't that exciting? And yet there won't be any disagreements. So I'm not, I, I don't even know if I can fathom how that works, how you can have just incredible diversity from all these tribes and languages and nations and backgrounds, but everybody believing the exact same thing doctrinally. That's exciting, isn't it? I look forward to that. Which people? Right, well... You know, I've I've had the privilege of going to many, many countries in the world and, and doing it. And, and the answer is with the Spirit, very well. When I'm fleshly, I don't relate to anybody well. You know, neither do they, for that matter. But when we're in the Spirit, we relate very well. But it's so fascinating to see the different things they come up with and the perspectives they have and all that. And it's really a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. All right, let's keep going. I want to, I want to get into the next section of our study here. The Holy Spirit gives stronger or weaker evidence of the presence and blessing of God according to our response to Him. Wow. In other words, the Holy Spirit will give you strong assurance based on whether you obey Him or not. He doesn't give to everybody the same sense of the presence of God. And so, the, you know, I think a key verse for this is John fourteen twenty one. This is a really, really important verse in my understanding of our experience of God in our lives. John 14, 21 says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. Another translation, manifest or disclose myself to him. What do you get out of that verse? What is John 14, 21 telling you? Okay. All right. You see the unity of the Father and the Son. What else do you see? Focus on this word manifest or disclose or show myself to him. Hang on, hang on. Hang on. She's, go ahead. <laughs> if, he, if, he, if we follow him you know, and obey his commands, then he'll show himself. And if we don't follow his commands, then he won't. He won't. Do you hear that? If, if we follow him and obey his commands, he will, he will show himself. Let me add a few words, if I could, to what you said. If we obey his commands, the more faithfully we obey his commands, 
the more he will show himself, the more increasingly he will disclose himself to you. Now, you might say, well, what more does he have to show? Well, what do you think? I mean, do you see God fully? Do you know him fully? Would you have more of God you would like to know, more of Christ? What about the Apostle Paul? Did he have more of Christ he wanted to know? Oh, you better believe. Remember Philippians 3 when he said, uh, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on. And then he says, I want to know Christ and the, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is an apostle who had visions of the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And all that happened after that is like, oh, I want more of that. There was this yearning to have more and more of Christ. And we know he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see through a glass darkly, then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. Do you think that Christ has more of himself that he could disclose to you in your life? Do you want him to? Do you yearn to see Christ more, to know him better? Well, then what does John 14, 21 tell you to do? Obey his commands. Do what he tells you to do. And the more you obey him and the more boldly you obey him, the more thoroughly you obey him, the more you'll see of him. He will disclose himself to you. Let me take a very specific example, the, the difficult example of boldness in evangelism and witnessing. Let's say you wake up tomorrow morning and you say, Lord, I haven't shared the gospel with anybody in a year. And I just, I want today to be the day. I want to be bold. I want to be faithful in the area of evangelism. Please help me. Give me a chance today to share the gospel. All right. And then later that day, you're in a restaurant and some, you know, the, the, the waiter or waitress is talking to you and you start having a, and then there's a voice inside the heart. Remember how you were praying this morning? Remember? This is it. This is your moment. And you go, ah. You know, what do I do? And then you say, Lord, help me. God, give me the boldness. And you step out in obedience to his commands. And how many commands are there concerning witnessing? You'll be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit will come on you. Make disciples of all nations. He who does not gather with me scatters. What's he gathering? People. So, I mean, there's all kinds of, all right. You say, I've got to obey his commands. So you then open your mouth and say, you know, do you have a church that you attend? No, not too often. Um, say, well, what is your spiritual background? Well, I was raised, blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, you're in a conversation. It's real slow in the restaurant and she sits down to talk to you, right? You can say, in your dreams. It never goes <laughs> like that. Um, but at any rate, you make the most of that opportunity. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Christ will disclose himself to you in that situation? Will you see more or feel more or sense more of the presence of God there? And then you get kind of excited. You say, I want more of that. I'd like to do that some more. And then you start being bold and there's a momentum that builds up in your life. He will reveal himself to you. Let me give you another, uh, for instance. Let's say you just feel like I have not really been faithful in prayer recently. I've not, I've not been praying the way I need to. Tonight, instead of doing what I usually do, I'm going to carve out two hours and I'm going to go in my room and I'm going to close the door and I'm going to set a timer. And I'm going to be in there for two hours until the timer. I'm going to have my Bible. I'm going to have some things, uh, prayer lists or whatever, but I'm just going to be there and I'm going to pray. Do nothing but prayer. I'm going to do what Jesus commanded me to do. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, he will do what? He will reward you. What do you think reward, what reward will he give you? What's the best reward he could give you? More of himself. Do you think he'll do it? Why don't you try it and find out? Okay? Go ahead. Go ahead.
remind myself of often as I'm thinking of the first slide of life, but this one is from Jeremiah uh, 29, 13, and seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Mm. And uh, I think that's a lot of what you're saying. I just have to remind that's myself of it all the time as my interests are so divided. Mm-hmm. And God's call us to, to love God with an undivided heart, and he will disclose more and more of himself as you seek him. That is so powerful. Tell me again. Jeremiah 29. It's in Psalm 9, 10, Proverbs 8, 17, Jeremiah 29, 13, and Deuteronomy Those are all seeking with all your heart. So, all right. So that's Jeremiah 29, 13 and some other places. That's wonderful. Another, another verse that teaches a similar thing is in Hebrews eleven six. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Now, that's an interesting verse. He rewards them, people, who diligently seek him. Now, here's the thing. Can you imagine? You're diligently seeking him, Christ, let's say. You're diligently seeking God, seeking him, seeking him, seeking him. Bing, now it's reward time. Is he going to give you something other than that which you've been seeking all the time? He will give you what you've been seeking. He will give you himself, but he will not give it to you if you don't believe, obviously. And frankly, you won't even seek if you don't believe. Do you see? You you won't think that he's there. So here it is. He who has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. See the relational side. And I will love him and I will manifest, show, disclose myself to him. You want to know more of Christ? Obey his commands. That's to me, that's huge. So the Holy Spirit gives stronger or weaker uh, evidence of the presence and the blessing of God uh, according to our response to him. Do you want more of that? Think of that. Would you like to have God ma- manifest himself more to you? Disclose himself. Thomas Goodwin gave this great quote, and I think it's so powerful. A man and his little child are walking down the road, and they're walking hand in hand. And the child knows that he is the child of his father, and he knows that his father loves him, and he rejoices in that, and he's happy in it. There is no uncertainty about it at all, but suddenly the father moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child, picks him up, fondles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then he puts him down again and they go on walking together. Now, I ask you a question. Is the experience of the child the same at the end as it was at the beginning? No. All right, Fred, how is it different? How is it different? I mean, the child knew he loved, the father loved him before and after, right? Well, what's the difference? Well, he had some manifestations, I guess I might use, use that word, of that love. Right. So it's not different in kind, it's just different in intensity, right? It's different in intensity. To have God sweep you up into his arms and take you and hold you and say, I love you, you're my child. Isn't that what the Spirit's been given to, get, to say to us? that he's put the spirit of adoption in us by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. He basically says to us, right to our hearts, you are my child and I love you. Now, my question is, who wouldn't want that? Wouldn't you want the father to sweep you up in his arms like Thomas Goodwin's illustration and speak to your heart and then set you back on the road and keep going? Saying, well, everything except the set you back on the road and keep going thing. (laughs) Okay, but then you would have to leave the world and think how sad your family and friends would be, all right? So in the meantime, you have work to do, but my feeling is there's a sense of seek it, right? Seek him. Just like Vic was saying, seek him earnestly with all your heart. 
That's what we're getting at. All right. Now, the Holy Spirit bestows or withdraws blessing based on his pleasure. He doesn't have to give you anything. Did you know that? It's up to him what he gives. He's God. He's God. He doesn't have to give you anything. He doesn't owe it to you. So you could seek him for two hours in prayer and not feel a single thing at the end of it. And you would not say at that point, oh, the Lord was not faithful. He might say, I would have given you something at three and a half hours. It's like, oh, you know, tell me later, right? It's like, I'm not saying that. I won't say you'd get no benefit. I'm just saying you might not get the thing you were expecting. But still things would happen in your life. Absolutely. All right, now, the Holy Spirit bestows or withdraws blessings based on his pleasure. First, Christ was completely without sin and the Spirit constantly remained on him. John 1.32, John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Christ also received the Spirit without measure. John 3.34 says, He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, Jesus had a full and constant experience of the Holy Spirit in his own life. Very mysterious, but he did. Now, others are said to be full of the Spirit as a characteristic and abiding trait. For example, the so-called deacons in Acts 6. They're never called deacons, but the verb to serve is there. So people think they are the first deacons. Acts 6.3, it says, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over, over to them. What do you think it means, who are known to be full of the Spirit? What does that tell you? Say again. Go ahead. Okay, they're witnesses. Yeah, go ahead, please. Okay, so there's a sense that they're like full vessels, full cups that are always filled with with the Holy Spirit all the time. Is everybody like that? No. (laughs) No, they're not. Now, should everybody be like that? Yes, they should, but uh, they aren't. And yet there are some that just walk with the Lord all the time. You know them. And they give evidence all the time of the power of the Spirit in their lives. So the Spirit gives, as he pleases, a sense of his presence. Stephen met these requirements in a noteworthy way. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So Stephen was like that. Others are described in this way. Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So it is possible to be consistently filled, empowered, and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God as an abiding trait of life. For these people, there is an ongoing sense of the presence of the Lord, and that is ministered to them and through them by the will and pleasure of God the Holy Spirit. There's a lot in there in that paragraph. It is possible for you to be constantly filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. That's possible. As a matter of fact, you're even commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And so, therefore, it is possible. However, there are problems. They are called sins against the Spirit. All right? Uh, for example, there's such a thing as grieving the spirit. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I've said before, that word only is devastating, isn't it? <laughs> what do you get, get out of that word only? I, I call it the mouth filter, okay? <laughs> okay, filter, like let some things pass and others aren't allowed to pass. okay. What do you think of that word only? What is it teaching you? Okay, not when you're tired. When you go home tonight, you're not free to say whatever you want to Maria. Is that right? Okay, all right. Only. Only what? Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Have you said any things that didn't meet the criteria like that today? Or maybe sometime in the last month, anyway. Other than John. John says no. But uh, others of you think that it's possible that some things have slipped out of your mouth 
that didn't meet this criteria. All right, well, let's keep reading. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. If you say something that doesn't meet the criteria, if you say something that hurts somebody, tears them down, attacks them, etc., I think in context we could say that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. It grieves him. Now, we've already talked about how this proves that the Spirit is a person because he has grief. Grief is a very strong emotion. He has a grieved feeling whenever we sin in any way. And therefore, I believe our sin is the reason why we are not filled with the Spirit continually because we grieve the Spirit of God, all right, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid then of all bitterness, rage, and anger. I, I mentioned this earlier, the sin of brawling. Again, you want to get rid of that. And if you're struggling with brawling, come and talk to me. All right, that's a very serious problem. But how about bitterness? Now, that's a different matter. Bitterness is a deep-seated anger. That grieves the Holy Spirit of God. All right, get rid of it. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. All right, the reason we're not filled with the Spirit is that we grieve the Spirit of God. We grieve Him. Now, I've said before, one of the ministries of the Spirit is to allow you to share in His grief. All right, what do I mean by that? How is it that the Spirit allows you to share in His grief? over your sin okay guilty conscience does the spirit actually minister grief to you think about it conviction and sorrow for it is there not a command in james chapter 4 grieve mourn and wail change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom it's not party time it's repentance time and so if you have sinned you need to feel sad about your sin. Do you feel sad right away as soon as you sin? Right away. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. And why? Because we are pig-headed sinners and we can go on a long time before we finally realize what we did. Okay? And then finally we say, oh, what have I done? Or what did I say? Etc. Now, who is it that's ministering that revelation moment to you where you finally see the statement you made from another person's perspective and you feel hurt inside about what you did. Is it not the Spirit of God? Isn't he ministering grief to you? Now, is he going to minister grief forever? No. He's going to minister grief until you grieve. And he'll minister repentance in turn and then he will restore you back into a right relationship with him and then he will minister joy and peace and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit to you. But when it's grieving time, you need to grieve. Yeah, that's true. Tell me more about that, Wells. What does that mean to you? Well, I just, I, I worry about some people who don't seem to be baptized again. They have trouble with things, you know, anger and anger. And, and, and in my own life, it's at times I've not grieved like I should. Mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, I, that passage in First John, I can't remember where it is, suggests that, you know, he testifies without spirit that he was sons of God. Yeah. Yeah, actually, there can be a really wonderful, wonderful sense of sweet sorrow because you're crying over your sin, deeply troubled by it, and in the middle of it, you say, hey, wait a minute. You know, I would not be feeling this way if I weren't a child of God. And that's when he's actually started to bring you back up and restore to you the joy of your salvation and just starts working, and it's a sweet thing. But it doesn't happen right away. (laughs) 
You know, first he wants, I think he wants a godly sorrow that produces repentance. And we skip that. It's in Corinthians. We skip that godly sorrow. And so therefore, Psalm 139, we just say, search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Why do you have to pray a prayer like that other than the fact that we are not aware of our own sin the way we should be? So you have to take the time to just say, search me, show me what my sin is. And then you'll start feeling sad for certain things. And then you say, Lord, I am sorry. I resolve to go make it right with that brother or sister or to say something that I, you know, rectify it, make restitution. I, I repent. I'm, I'm sorry for what I did. And then he begins to minister assurance and comfort to you. So anyway, I think the reason we're not constantly filled with the Spirit is we sin. The Spirit is grieved, but then he ministers his grief to us. We feel the grief, we repent, and then he starts to restore us in a right relationship with him. All right, another thing we can do is quenching the Spirit. All right, it says there in First uh, Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, it says, Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. That's the context. Uh, what does it mean to quench the spirit? What, what do you think of this word quench? Put a, fire out. Put a fire out, right? I mean, you think about how they work. Uh, have you ever been to like uh, Williamsburg or wherever they, they, they have the blacksmith? And he's like, he, get, he puts something in the, in the furnace and, the, you know, the bellows and he gets it all hot and pulls it out and it's glowing red, Right. And he hammers the thing, and it sparks it, whoa, you know, and, and he's making some hinge or something like that, or a nail. They usually make a nail, so it's easy to make. But just hammering on the thing, whatever. And then he takes it and shoves it in a, in a, in a bucket of water. That's quenching. And what it does is it does something to the metal. It hardens the metal. It's called quench hardening. I mean, it hardens the metal. And then he puts it back in, et cetera. What then, spiritually, what is the quenching of the spirit? What does that mean? Okay, now that's a cause of the quenching. Jared, what does it mean to quench the spirit? To cool it off. Okay. I mean, if you think about it like the nail, mm-hmm. it's hot, it's the fire, it's the thing that keeps you going. Mm-hmm. When you do something wrong, you push it aside, you cool it off, you put it in a bucket of water, you say, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to think about it, I don't want to deal with it, and it mm-hmm. cools off. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me take an example of somebody who's a, who's a new Christian, really excited about their faith, and say, I think we ought to go out and tell everybody about Jesus. I really think that I think we just ought to be telling everybody about Jesus. And you're more mature in your faith. You know, you've been around the, the block a few more times than he or she has. And you're like, well, you know, I was like you once, you know, and all that sort of stuff. I think what we need to do instead is blah, blah, blah. You are a big bucket of water right now. And you have just quenched the spirit. All right. Go ahead, John. Were you going to say something? You have just quenched the spirit. Go ahead, Ann. Not following where he wants you to go. That's very, very good. William Carey? All right, that's a famous story. He was a shoemaker and he said, you know, I think we need to make every effort to convert the heathen, the the unbelievers. And they said, when God wants to convert them, he'll do it in his own time, in his own way. That's a quenching right there. So you can quench somebody else's zeal or joy. You can quench your own, all right? Quenching of the spirit. I love, Annie, what you said too. That's a, you know, grieving of the spirit means you're going negatively in a wrong direction. He doesn't want you to go, you're sinning. The other is 
quenching the spirit, maybe he wants you to move out, go boldly in a certain direction, and you say no. Either you do it or to somebody else. All right, we're out of time. Um, we'll talk some more, God willing, about this next time. Um, the, the simple thing I want to leave you with, Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That is a command. It's an interesting command. It's one of the most fascinating grammatical constructions you'll ever find. It is a passive imperative. Imperative, usually told to do something. Here, you're told to have something done to you. That's really quite fascinating, isn't it? What are you being commanded to have done to you? You're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What I think it means is make yourself fully available to the Spirit. Say, Lord, here I am. Fill me up with yourself now. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to study. I thank you for each of the brothers and sisters you brought here tonight. And Father, I pray that you would please be working and moving in our church by the power of the Spirit. Lord, make us a Spirit-filled place. I pray that the fruit of the Spirit would be on full display in this church. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Put them on display in my life and in each of the lives. Put them on display in our marriages, in our home life, with our parenting, with our children. Put them on display at, uh, at the workplace with our coworkers, our bosses, or our employees, or our peers. Put them on display, Lord, just in everyday life, out in the supermarket, the gas stations, in the streets. Everyone we encounter, oh Lord, put the, the fruit of the Spirit on display through us. Help us to be genuinely zealous for you. As it says in Romans 12, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I pray that we would not quench our own spirit, the Spirit of God working within us. Lord, I pray that you would make us a Spirit-filled church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.